We started the sermon series last week, and we're going to span the summer for 11 weeks, this week, last week, and nine other weeks. And, um, and so if you missed last week, I'll give just a brief recap. But I also encourage you, if you want to know more about the background and the history, go back and listen to last week's sermon. You can do that on our podcast or on our Facebook page. We live stream the services, so those are on Facebook. Or um, if you have any kind of podcasting device, an iPhone or any of that kind of stuff, go to the podcast app. You can type in New Life Church, and uh, there's several of, of New Life Churches there, but find ours. And, uh, and you can listen to the audio versions of all of our past sermons as well. And so if you'd like to catch a week that you missed or uh, review or share a sermon with somebody that wasn't here, that you say, hey, you know what, that really would be good for my sister, my friend, my cousin, whoever to hear, you can share those things on the podcast as well. So here's a brief review. The book of James was likely the first book that was written in the New Testament during the persecution of the church just shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection. It was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, who didn't uh, become a believer in Jesus as the Son of God until later in life. But he became convinced uh, to the point of becoming a writer of this book and ultimately uh, to the point of giving his life as a martyr for the gospel, refusing to recant his belief in Jesus. And so today, we're in James 1, 19-27. We have uh, we've set up a Bible reading plan that goes along with our sermon series. If you didn't get one of the reading guides last week, there's some available uh, in the table there as you come in or as you go out this morning. You can pick that up. Also on our social media, on our Facebook group, we have a, a group called New Life Church Family. We have an Instagram, all those kinds of things. There's interaction there, opportunities for you to ask questions and share what God spoke to you. We had several people that, that shared a little bit about what God laid on their heart from last week's reading. We encourage you to interact uh, on that way as well and, uh, and uh, engage there. Um, so last week's sermon dealt with um, trials in life. It, it talked about counting it all as joy because of the perseverance that God is producing in our lives, making us complete and immature. It talked about believing in God and not doubting. We talked about the temptations that we face and that those aren't from God, but they're from our own evil desires inside of us. And if they're unchecked, they lead to death. Well, we talked about how to persevere under trial and in the face of temptation, there's a crown of life that God has promised because every good and every perfect gift comes from God. So that gives you a little, little history of where we were in the beginning of James chapter 1. And I, I shared last week, there's no way uh, in 11 weeks that we can cover every single topic. There's probably 30 weeks worth of sermon material in the book of James. Tiny little book, but there's a lot of, of, of great nuggets. And so uh, we can't cover it all, but you can in your reading time. God can speak to you through those additional topics. We're kind of hitting some of the main themes that are in the book of James. And so James chapter 1, verse 19, it says this. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteous life that God desires. We could stop right there and preach a whole sermon on that. There's a lot of good stuff right there, just in that alone. Some of, some of you, that's what God wants to speak to you today. We're really not focusing on, on those verses very much, but there's some good stuff in there that you may need to write down and come back to and review over the course of this week. These are good principles for life, but I also think that James knows that he's about to step on some people's toes. And so basically what I feel like he's telling people in these verses, because these, these couple verses here don't really tie in to this, this section that we're about to go into. But James says everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I really think the reason that it doesn't match the topic of the theme that we're about to get into is because really what James is saying here to the people that he's writing to 
is that sometimes you need to shut up and listen without getting angry and really think about what you're about to hear. Because he's about to step on some toes. And you remember that James wrote this, not Pastor Matt. <laughs> Verse 21 says, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you that can save you. James is saying sometimes you have to take out the trash. There's Sometimes there's things that don't belong in your life. Verse 22. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. This is a theme for this passage. And I believe it's in a lot of ways a theme for this entire book of James. Verse 23 says, Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his own face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. James is kind of chasing a bunny, a bunny trail that he chases a lot through the book. And in chapter 3, he deals a lot more with controlling the tongue. And so we're not going to focus on this much today. But maybe God wants to speak to you today about that. And that's just a special extra bonus for you there today. But verse 27 says this, kind of summarizes what he said so far. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It'd be hard for me to believe that there's anyone here today who's not heard the phrase, just do it. And when we hear that phrase, we immediately think about what? <laughs> just do it. What comes to mind? Nike, right? It's, it's pretty obvious. In fact, Nike is very protective of that slogan, just do it. They've gone to court to prevent anyone from using that in any way. In fact, they've even gone to court and won over similarities such as just did it, which isn't even the same thing as just do it, but it, it was close enough apparently. But this idea of just do it really didn't even originate with Nike. They ripped it off from somebody else. In fact, the story about how Nike got the slogan idea, just do it, it's kind of a morbid story, but I'll share it with you. Uh, in 1977, a man by the name of Gary Gilmore was on death row as a result of having murdered a gas station employee and a motel manager. And so at this time, uh, capital punishment looked a little different than it looks today. Uh, Gilmore was strapped to a chair and a firing squad was ready to execute him. And shortly before his execution, he was asked if he had any Last words. Anyone care to take a guess of what his last three words may have been? Just do it. Almost. He said, let's do it. And the Washington Post reported that he didn't even flinch as the firing squad executed him. So the story of Gilmore has mostly been forgotten. And his final words, let's do it, uh, really inspired an advertising executive who, who read this story, and there was a book that was written about it at that time. Uh, he was the first person who had been executed in 10 years. And this advertising ex, uh, executive, he, he heard this story and, and read it, and he slightly changed the let's do it to just do it. And, and this was pitched to Nike, who hated the idea. In fact, when, when this <laughs> advertising executive said, you know, your, your new slogan that you need to go with needs to be just do it. It's going to be good. It's going to be simple. It's going to be catchy and easily rememberable. Uh, Nike hated the idea and wanted nothing to do with it. They said it absolutely would not work. It wouldn't catch on. It was a terrible idea. But somehow this advertising executive 
convinced them uh, to, to just run with it and try it and see what would happen. Just, just do it. And it took off, obviously, and, and the rest is, is history. So this idea of just do it, it didn't originate with, with Nike in the 1980s. It's a great story, but it really didn't it originate with the advertising executive who came up with the idea, although he was pretty clever in connecting the story of the execution and those final words. But his, his, his idea for this slogan really didn't even begin with the murderer, Gary Gilmore, in the 1970s. I think we hear the same idea, just do it, and what we just read from James almost 2,000 years before Nike decided to adopt it. When James says, don't merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. But I don't believe James was trying to be original or unique. He didn't come up with this either. In the same way that the advertising executive ripped it off from Gary Gilmore, James kind of ripped off what he's sharing here as well. This wasn't original to him either. You see, the book of James only mentions Jesus twice in the entire book, but it references or quotes Jesus repeatedly. In fact, there are scholars who say that the entire book of James, in a lot of ways, is almost an exact parallel of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You can go through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and find the topics that are there all here inside the book of James. And so in a lot of ways, the book of James is a practical application of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So if we go back a few years before James shares this idea of don't merely listen to the word, but do what it says, we go back to Luke chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And we mentioned how it's a parallel of the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember how Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount, he had a summary that basically said this, everyone who hears these words of mine but does them will be like the man who builds his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like the man who builds his house on the sand. Jesus is the original author of Just Do It. He came up with it. James ripped it off from Jesus. Gary Gilmore, who knows where he got it from. Maybe he was reading the book of James when he was sitting on death row. The advertising executive ripped it off from him. Nike didn't like it, but they used it from the advertising executive. But really, it originates in the word of God. Just do it. And what I want to share with you today, what I believe that James overall wants to share with us today is that there's, there's a message that we hear, there's a message that we read, there's a message that can be applied to our lives, but we have to put it in action in our lives. You see, Jesus was concerned that there were followers of his that were thinking that they were building their life on the rock, but they were really, they were not putting the things that they heard into action and they were deceiving themselves and they were in fact building their house on the sand. And that's the same idea that James is wanting to echo to the readers of this letter that he wrote, which originally was to early Christians who were scattered because of persecution. But now we're also included in the readers of this letter. And the message is significant for us today as it was when James wrote it, because sometimes we need to re be reminded that when it comes to the word of God, it's not enough just to hear it. We have to just do it. James was concerned for his readers and for the things that were going on in the church and the things that he was seeing and that he was hearing about and the things that were active in their lives because his readers were not only in danger because of the trials of many kinds that they faced that we talked about last week. They were not only in danger because of the persecution that they were facing, but James is also concerned that his readers are in danger of deceiving themselves by hearing the word of God and thinking that everything is okay because they've heard it, but really they're not putting it into practice in their lives. And it results in what he calls a worthless 
form of religion. He's seeing things and hearing things about human anger that doesn't bring about a righteous life that God desires, about ungodly speech that's common in the church. There's favoritism. There's partiality. Rich people are being favored. Poor people are being looked down on. And what all these things are revealing is that there's people that are just hearing the word of God and the teachings of Jesus, but they aren't living them and putting them into practice. Because if you really read the word of God, if you really observe the teachings of Jesus, there's no way that these things could exist in your life if you are putting the word of God into action. And James is, is telling about how genuine faith isn't just hearing, it's doing. And James is not going to allow them to continue to be deceived. He wants them to know that this form of religion of just hearing it and not living it won't cut it. So in a lot of ways, this passage doesn't just speak to what we're going to talk about today. James talks about a couple little topics here and there. But in a lot of ways, this is a foundation for the topics that we're going to look at in the weeks to come. James is going to deal with topics of inequality in society. He's going to deal with topics like racism and favoritism and people not controlling their tongues and, and anger issues and more. He, 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 uh, he's going to go through all these different topics and all these different things. And he does it by laying the foundation here that hearing isn't good enough. You have to live it. You can't, you can't claim to be a follower of Jesus and allow these things to go unchecked in your life. Does it mean that we're all going to be perfect? We're never going to slip up? No. And he gives some allowance for grace as well in our lives. But it's more of the matter when these things operate in our lives uncontrolled, without any intention of ever making a difference, not realizing that these things contradict the teachings of Jesus and what the Bible says. James wants his readers to know that there can be no right standing with God absent of right behavior. The word righteousness that James used means right standing with God or doing what God requires. And so there's a couple things that I want to share with you today and, and some practical advice that James gives us that we can put into practice in, in our lives. The first thing that he talks about is what we need to get rid of. What we need to get rid of. James talks about getting rid of all the moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent. He says that, that one part of the pure religion that God accepts is keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. How many of you know if you don't take out the trash, the whole house begins to stink? It doesn't take really that long for the smell of the trash can to overflow, the smell of the garbage disposal, the sink, whatever remnant may be left there from, from lunch last night or dinner last night, begins to, to sink up the whole house. Pollution is described as the, the introduction of contaminants into the natural environment that can, that can cause adverse change. Sometimes we can get so used to pollution, to junk, to bad smells, to, to nasty things that are going on around us, that it just becomes a natural part of something that we accept in our lives. If you don't deal with the, the trash can that smells bad, not only will it sink up your whole house, but you'll become accustomed to the smell and you won't even realize how bad it does smell. Sometimes we get so used to the pollution around us that we forget that it's not the way it's supposed to be. We used to live, my family used to live in the south part of Houston, I don't ever wish for anyone to ever have to be sentenced to Houston. It's pretty terrible. Um, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of really bad weather. There's a lot of really bad storms. And there's pollution. And where we lived in South Houston, there was a lot of chemical plants. In fact, one of the largest chemical companies in the world uh, operates very close to where we lived. And um, there's, a, there's all these chemical plants and a lot of strange things. We moved there not having been from Houston. 
and we began to observe some really strange things about this Gulf Coast area where all these chemical plants and companies would operate and they, they didn't always follow the rules. In fact, it was a well-known fact that it was less expensive for the chemical, chemical companies to pay the fines every single year, multiple times a year, than it was for them to operate by the rules. And so they didn't follow the rules. They just did what they wanted and paid the fines every year. And so when we moved there, we noticed some things that really shouldn't have been normal, but the people that lived there just accepted them as a part of everyday life. Like all the time, there were just really bad smells. I'm talking about really bad smells, things that would cause you to want to go inside, close all the windows, plug your nose, and spray whatever you could spray, and it still wouldn't be enough. And these things would come into your house, into your car, you'd be driving, one, thing, one moment everything is fine, the next moment it's terrible, and you knew it couldn't be healthy, you knew there was something bad that was happening, they were releasing something they weren't supposed to be releasing, something was going on, but people that lived there accepted it. Why are there all these terrible smells? The other thing that we noticed is that there was an unusually high number of deformities in people. And we did a little research and it was actually a proven statistic that some of the highest de birth defects and deformities in the entire world came out of this South Houston area. And, and you just see them all the time. You walk into to Walmart and there's a guy with like 12 fingers and two hands, you know, three hands. It's like there to greet you. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not a whole lot. And it wasn't just the people that were deformed. I did a little bit of fishing on the coast when I was there and you'd catch fish with three eyes and they like glow in the dark and all kinds of crazy stuff. You're like, I don't know if I really should eat this, but people just accepted it. They were accustomed to the pollution. They were accustomed to this crazy way of life. We were pretty happy when we left. In our lives, we can get so used to the moral filth and the evil and the pollution that's around us that we begin to say things like, well, it's just the way that it is today. Yeah. Everybody's doing it. It's normal. That's the world we live in. Welcome to 2019. We just begin to accept the pollution and the filth and the corruption and all the junk that's going on around us. And James tells his readers that we're doing the same thing that we do in 2019. They were doing it 2,000 years ago, just accepting it. And, and these things were rubbing off on them and they were becoming like the society around them. He tells them it's not okay. We can't accept these things into our life. We have to get rid of them because a part of the pure religion that God accepts is keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. I'm not someone that is easily offended and I don't think that Christians should be known as people that should be easily offended or we shouldn't be known for the things that we boycott and make a big deal out of things. We can't expect people who live and believe differently to be held to our standards. I don't believe that we should legislate, legislate biblical morality. That's not God's intention was that just that laws would be passed that make everybody abide by our, our, view, our viewpoint and our way of life and our, our biblical interpretation. That, that wasn't God's intention. He, his desire was that we would have a free choice and that we would willingly choose to serve and obey him. So it does us no good to be offended at people. Especially, we can't, we can't hold people that don't believe to our standard of life. It's the, the sinner's sin. And when we were sinners, we sinned. And we shouldn't expect anything else from people around us. So, so there's no use being offended by people that are doing just what they do. Don't be shocked by it. The world's filthy and it's polluted. But there should be some things that offend us to the point that we say, that's not the influence that I want in my life. And everybody else may be doing it, and everybody else may be accepting that, and that may be what everyone else around me looks like, but that offends me to the point that I'm not going to do it personally. 
I'm making a stance because of what I believe and because of what the Bible teaches me and that I'm going to live my life differently. That's not coming into my home. That's not going to be put in front of my eyes. Those aren't the lyrics that I want to listen to. There are things that we can get rid of because they're not beneficial to our lives. And the people that James was writing to in that day and the people in our day need to hear the message that there's some things that should offend us to the point that we don't allow them to influence our lives. The second thing that James talks about after he gets done with what to get rid of, he talks about what to accept. James doesn't say only to not be polluted and to get rid of moral filth and evil. He says to accept the word that has been planted in you that can save you. Some of you have a really green thumb. You plant things and they grow. That's amazing. I've seen and I've eaten from the gardens of many of you. And uh, just in the last week, we were at someone's house and they took us out to their garden and they pulled some rhubarb, which they gave to us. And that's not really a big thing in Texas, but my wife was really excited because she has some recipes that she wanted to try. I've spent some time around gardens and around plants. My dad really loves having a garden, and so we, we always had one growing up. I'm not an agricultural expert, but I do know that there's some things that help growth, and there's some things that hinder growth. There's environments that can stimulate growth, and there's others that prevent it. This week I went to the nursery right up the road here to Windmill, and I, I was looking at some different plants that we should plant on the east side of the church, and I wanted a quick, a quick answer to my question, you know, and my question was, what kind of plant should I buy? I just wanted a really quick answer. I had a really quick question. Just tell me what to buy, and I'm going to do it. But instead, I got to, to, like, be quizzed, which really wasn't what I was expecting. But sometimes that's how we are in our lives. We just want a quick answer to our, our questions. And so I didn't get a quick answer because, really, I was asking the wrong questions. And so the person that was there began to ask me, well, what, what kind of soil is it? And I said, the kindness of the ground. I don't know. There's grass on top of it. He said, well, grass grows anywhere. It's like a weed. I need to know what kind of soil it is. I said, just assume it's the worst soil and we'll be okay. He said, okay, well, is it in the sun or is it in the shade? I said, well, when the sun's shining, I assume it's in the sun. He said, well, which, you know, which part of the building is on the east part? Well, then there's a part of the day where it's in the shade. So you need something that is okay with the sun but also can tolerate the shade. Do you want seasonal or evergreen? I don't know. He's like, well, do you want it to be green all year long? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So finally, after this long questionnaire, we decided that maybe the Mugo Pines was going to be the best option for us. And so if you go out the east side of our building today, you'll see some different Mugo uh, plants out there that we planted. And yesterday as we were digging the holes, one of the holes, I thought I had gotten into the foundation of the building or something because there was this big old piece of concrete. And so we began to dig and I... The larger that we began to dig the hole around this concrete, that's where I began to wonder, is this really a part of the foundation or is it just a rock? And it turned out it was just a huge rock, huge big piece of concrete that was there. And I knew that if we planted that plant on top of that concrete, the roots weren't going to take root. It was just going to die. And so we had to remove it and it took a little while to do it. But we, but we did that because we wanted the environment that we were planting in to be an environment that it could take root, that what was planted would be able to grow. We had to, to remove some of those rocks. We had to add some compost. Why? Because I told him to assume it was the worst soil ever. And so he, he gave us some cow compost. We wanted what was planted to, to take root and to grow. And in our lives, there's some things that God has planted. And he desires to see those things grow in our lives. But God's not going to force us 
to have the environment where those things that are planted will grow. He gives us once again the free will in our lives, the choices that we can make. We're the gardeners of our hearts and of our lives. The kind of environment that we create will determine what's going to be able to grow in our lives. And there's some of those things of pollution and moral filth and the evil that's so common in the world around us. And if those are the things that are creating the environment in our life, then the things that God has planted, the seeds that he's planting there, are never going to take root. They're never going to be able to grow. There's things that we have to get rid of. There's things that have to go so that other things can grow. James tells us that we have to make a choice to get rid of the things that don't belong and accept the word that God has planted in us that has the power to save us. We have to prepare the good soil in our hearts so that the seed of God's word will produce the fruit that it's capable of. If you want to know why you're not seeing the fruit in your life from, from living the Christian life, the fruit in your life of the word of God, then you should probably take a look at the environment in your life and ask yourself, have I done my part to create an environment where those things that God has planted are going to be able to take root and grow. So after telling us what to get rid of and what to accept, James tells us what to look at. James uses this example of a man who's looking at himself in the mirror and he goes away and he forgets what he looks like. And he compares that to those who hear, but they go away and immediately forget what they've heard. It's almost impossible to think that a person could be standing in front of the mirror looking at themselves and they could go away and think, I don't even know what I look like anymore. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy to think that. But sometimes we, get, we just get busy. We get focused on, I just got to do my hair, throw on the shirt. We see ourselves, but we're really not looking. And so there may be something crazy going on that we don't notice. It's interesting here the language that James uses when he's talking about looking at your face in the mirror. He literally says in Greek, if you take the Greek words that he uses, it says looking at the, gen- at the face of his genesis. There's a man looking at the face of his genesis. That word genesis gives the idea of birth or creation. And so you could argue that what James is saying is that so often we look into the face of who we were created to be and we walk away and we forget all about it. And the contrast is the one who looks intently into the mirror of the law that gives freedom. The word intently is the idea of taking a moment to carefully look. The word's only used two other times in Scripture. One place, it's used when the disciples went to the tomb after Jesus had been resurrected and he wasn't there. And it says that they looked intently into the tomb. They wanted to make sure. Is Jesus really not there? And the other place that it's used is is in reference to a careful investigation of the Scripture. So James is contrasting two people. He's contrasting the person who looks at who he was created to be, but he quickly looks away and he forgets all about that. And the second is is the person who carefully reviews not only who he was created to be, but also who he's able to be because of what Jesus did, because of the gospel, the law that gives freedom. That person carefully examines that and doesn't forget, but continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard. And then it says that that person will be blessed. The careful looker doesn't forget God's truth, but instead he becomes a doer. God not only has planted seeds in our lives, but he also gives us the opportunity to see the potential of all that he created us to be and all that he's made a way for us to be. And he doesn't give us that opportunity so that we can just look at it and walk away and forget. He wants us to take it in and continue in it. When we, when we not only listen to God's word, but we begin to put it into practice in our lives, we're focusing on who God created us to be. It may be that when we look in the mirror, 
that we don't see who God created us to be. It may be that we look in the mirror and we see who we have become because of the environment that we've created in our world, but God wants us to look intently into who he created us to be and who we're able to be because of what he's done. On our own, we're unable, but because of what Jesus has done, we have the ability to become something greater than what we just see through a casual glance in the mirror. But when we hear it and we don't do it, it's like we're seeing the image, but we refuse to believe that we could ever be what we see so we don't try. The test of the authenticity of our faith is not based on the things that we hear or that we know, but the true litmus test of our, of our religion is obedience. Religion that results in hearing but not doing, James says, that's, that's worthless religion. If it doesn't change anything inside of you, if how you live your life is exactly the same and nothing changes, then that religion's worthless. So we know what we need to get rid of. We know what we need to accept. We know what we need to look at. And finally, James tells us what we need to do. How many of you just want to know what I need to do? Come on, wrap it up. Tell me what I got to do. You've stepped on my toes. You've already told me I got to get rid of things in my life that I'm really attached to. You've already told me that I need to accept some things that are going to be hard. You've already told me that I need to look at, at things differently. What is it exactly that I need to do? Well, James lays the foundation that we cannot be hearers only, we have to become doers, and he gives us some practical things that we should do. And he says this, he says that pure and faultless, or some versions say undefiled religion that God accepts involves these things. But it's important to note here that what James is saying and what he isn't saying. He's not saying that what he's about to give in these couple of verses is a complete list of everything that we have to do. This is not a complete and comprehensive summary of everything involved in the true worship of God. But what he is saying is that religion and worshiping God without these things is nothing because at some point you become a, a person that's a hearer and not a doer. And so there's just a couple things that he lists here. And he says you can't have pure religion. You can't have a, a relationship with God that's going to be honoring and pleasing to God without these things. And there's two major focuses that James lists here. The first of those is social concerns. James is letting his readers know that the gospel is not theoretical and abstract. It's meant to be put into practice in our everyday lives. And James mentions the care of orphans and widows. There's a recurring theme in James is the plight of those that are insignificant and devalued in the eyes of the world. The people that, that most people would look at and, and look down on because of a situation or circumstance in their lives. In Psalms 68.5, God describes himself as the father of the fatherless and the defender of the widows. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, he announces that God will no longer recognize the worship of people who do nothing more than religious ritual. He instead says that they should learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, and defend the, the widow and the orphan. And this idea of the orphan and the widow represents those who are helpless and are in need. And a Christian whose religion is pure and faultless will imitate God's character by intervening to help the helpless and the hopeless. It may be the hungry or the exploited person in our city or maybe on the other side of the world. It may be the homeless person in the inner city. It may be the unemployed person or those who are inadequately represented by government or in law. There are people who should see the evidence of our Christianity at work in our lives. This is the religion that God accepts. It may be controversial in our world right now, but it's not a matter of politics as much as it is 
a matter of obedience. And so James says that we should, we should take up the cause of those who, who are, are misrepresented, those who are, are looked down on in society, the orphans and the widows. The second thing that James talked about is moral purity. And this is something we've already discussed a little bit as, as we've discussed what to get rid of and what to accept. But we have to avoid adopting the attitudes and actions and the value system of the world around us. The values of Laramie or, or of the state of Wyoming, they, those may or may not be aligned with the values of the Word of God. The values of our government, regardless of whether it's conservative or liberal or whatever else, those don't define our values. God's not a Republican or a Democrat. Our first allegiance is not to politics or to government or a party. It should be to a king and a kingdom that are not of this world. Amen. And if there's things in this world that align with God's kingdom and with that king, then those are things that can align with our lives. But if they're not, regardless of, of whatever else they may be, then those aren't things that should influence us Amen. in an undue manner. So pure religion is a combination of a purity of a heart and a purity of action, living the things that we say we believe. We can't pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we want to accept. We can't pick and choose, I'm going to accept this and I'm going to reject that. When we begin to pick and choose what scripture we believe is truth, what we really do is we nullify the entire Bible as a whole. If we say, I, I like this, I'm going to live this, I'm going to put this into practice in my life, but this over here, not so much, I don't think this applies to me, then once you do that, the Bible really has no value to you at all. You devalue the whole thing. We live in a world, and we're in constant danger of having the taint of this world system rub off on us. And if we aren't careful, we're going to align ourselves with systems and with processes and with ideas and ideologies of the world rather than God's word. Charles Spurgeon, he was preaching on this very scripture and he said this. He asked these questions. What would you say of a cook who prepared food for other people and yet died of starvation? You'd probably say foolish cook. I say foolish hearers. He asked, does it give you a thrill of pleasure to see so many taken from the highways and the hedges and brought in and brought close to God and you stand outside and never partake yourself? He says, I always pity the poor little boys on a cold winter night who stand outside a steaming cook shop window and look inside and see others feasting, but they have none themselves. In a way, I can understand that, he says, but I can't understand you. All things are ready. You are begged and persuaded to come, and yet you, you're content to perish with hunger. I pray that you think of yourselves, and I ask the Spirit of God to make you doers of the word and not hearers only. That's pretty powerful. So here's the questions that I have for you today. Are there areas of your life today where you can see that you've been a hearer but not a doer? Are there areas of your life that if you're honest today, you can look into your life, you can look into the mirror of your life, and you can say, you know what, I know that I need to do this. I know that God's been talking to me about this. There's some things that I say that I believe, but really when I get look into my life, it doesn't match up. Are there things that you need to do that you're not doing? 
do your actions reflect your beliefs? Does your Monday match your Sunday? Like would your family and friends and coworkers, if they found out that you're a Christian, would they believe you based on what they see in your life lived out at work, at home? In what ways are you not living according to your identity and to your destiny? Remember he talked about looking into the mirror of who we were created to be. In what ways are you not living according to your identity and to your destiny? Maybe God's been speaking to you about something that you need to get rid of in your life. Or maybe he's been talking to you about something that you need to accept from his word. Maybe God's been showing you a glimpse of what you were created for, but you haven't taken time to look intently into that mirror and then to act in faith. I wonder if any of these areas apply to you and they apply to me. Would you just slip up a hand and say, you know what, God's speaking to me today about one of these areas of my life. Is there anyone here today? Awesome. So I want to pray for us and I want to do something a little different. We're going to go old school today. There used to be a thing in church where at the end of a message you would just spend some time at the altar, laying some things down, hearing from God, allowing it to sink in. And sometimes we, you know, we change things and, and, and we get in a hurry or whatever the case may be. But this morning I'm going to pray for you and then I want to give you an opportunity just to spend some time in the altar this morning, just to hear from God and say, God, what are the things that I hear that I'm not doing? What are the things that I need to put into practice in my life? And like I said before, the altar is not about a piece of furniture. Maybe you want to come and actually kneel at the altar because you like that, you can. Maybe you want to make your chair to an altar, whatever it is you want to, want to do. But I've asked Jesse just to, to lead us in this song softly. And just for us to spend some moments reflecting on that and asking, asking God those questions. God, what is it you're speaking to me today? God, what are things I need to put into practice in my life so that I can be a doer of the word and not just a hearer? I want to do it in my life. So God, would you help us to put our faith into action? God, would you help us not to be hearers only, but to be doers of your word? God, I pray as we just take a few minutes here at the end of the service just to hear from you just to hear what you want to speak into our lives, that you would speak, that we would hear today not just my words and, and what I've prepared from this sermon, but God, that you would speak to us in our lives. God, maybe there's some things that need to be laid down at an altar today. So we've talked about the things that we need to get rid of. God, there's some things that don't belong in our lives. There's some things that are not creating the environment so that the, the seeds that you're planting in our lives can really take root. God, help us to, to lay, that, lay down those things. Help us not to become so attached to things in our lives that they would be something that we would prefer over the things that you want to put into our lives. God, help us to look into the mirror of who you created us to be. Not a legalistic mirror. There's, there's ability for us to have grace. Not, not one of us here is going to live a perfect life. But God, help us to look into that mirror of who you created us to be and know that we're striving to become who you created us to be. And we are putting into action those things that need to be happening in our lives so that we can move towards that person that you created us to be. God, help us to apply these things to our lives and to live them. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I encourage you, if you want to come find a place around one of these altars, 
Sometimes it just helps just to get out of the chair that you've been in, just to move in a way of saying, God, I'm, I'm not only physically moving from where I am to somewhere else, but God, I, I, I'm doing it as a symbol that there's some things in my life that need to change. And so as I'm physically moving, as I'm taking a step, as I'm coming forward, as I'm going to an altar, God, I'm, I'm doing it as a symbol that some things in my life are also <coughs> going to change. Let's hear from God over the next few minutes. There's a church historian by the name of Hegesippus, and he lived immediately during and after the time of the apostles, and he gives um, a lot of accounts of, of things that were happening during that time. And one of the things that he says about James is he says that James would go to the temple and he was allowed to go into the holy place. And he was in the habit of entering alone into the temple and he was frequently found on his knees begging for forgiveness for the sin in his life and for the forgiveness of other people. And he spent so much time going into the temple, praying on his knees, that his knees became hard like those of the camel because of constantly bending them in prayer and worship for forgiveness for his life and for other people. That's the author that challenges us not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. Someone who spent time himself every day alone, long, long hours. I don't know how much time you have to spend on your knees before your knees become like the knees of camels. But if you look at the knees of camels, it's not a very pretty thing. But James spent a lot of time because he believed in his own life that you have to be more than just a hearer. You have to be a doer. You have to live it out. So my challenge to you today as we go on about our day and the other things that we have to do this weekend and the rest of the week, let your, let your Monday match your Sunday. Spend some time on your knees. Spend some time in prayer. Spend some time reflecting on, God, does my life really look like the things that I say I believe? Does my life look like the things that I sing on Sunday? Am I really doing your word or am I just hearing it in a lot of ways, deceiving myself and building building my house on the sand instead of on the rock that you want for my house to be built on. God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the example, not only from the words that James wrote, but also from his life. God, help us to go out of this place and to live the life that you've created us to live. We thank you for it. We thank you for, for your forgiveness when we fall short of the mark. We thank you for grace that allows us to be human but also for an urging of your Holy Spirit that calls us to a higher place of living, to a higher standard, to actually live the things that we say that we believe, to model authentic Christianity to a world that's seen so many examples of poor Christianity, so many examples of people that say that they believe one thing, but their life doesn't match it. God, help us not to continue to add to the to fan the flames of the fire that people believe that, that all, all following you and all religion and all church is just a bunch of hypocrisy. God, help us to be living examples of what it really means to be authentic followers of you. Help us to humbly accept those things that you plant inside of our lives and to create an atmosphere where those things can grow and so that we can see the fruit of all that you desire to see in our lives. 
We thank you for it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.